Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Valina Beatty. She is an innocence litigator, law professor, and a former federal prosecutor. She's the author of Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. This book includes wrongful convictions based on gender and sexual orientation, in addition to other things. So Valina's here to, you know, share about her background, um, fighting the good fight, and, you know, more on her personal story. So I'm happy to have Valina here today. Thank you so much, Valina. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about you and why you're so interested in this work? Sure. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, and that sums up what you said, my, my career trajectory, my life trajectory, that, you know, I started out as a prosecutor and someone who prosecuted domestic violence and sexual violence. Uh, and I became a prosecutor because I wanted to stop those cycles of violence. I had been a rape victim advocate. I had advocated for survivors. Uh, in a hospital setting, and I wanted to prosecute people who were committing these harms. Uh, and through being a prosecutor, that's where I saw some of the drawbacks and the limitations of what a prosecutor can do. Uh, and I started to learn about wrongful convictions, that sometimes uh, prosecutors get it wrong, sometimes the court system gets it wrong. Uh, and I ended up pivoting and really focusing instead on representing people who had been wrongly convicted. Uh, and that's what I've done for about the past 15 years. Um, so I've represented people wrongly convicted in Mississippi, in West Virginia, uh, and I have now just moved to Indiana, uh, my, my home state. So I'm, I'm glad to be back in Indiana and helping to found the uh, Innocence Project of Indiana. Uh, and so that's just a little bit about me and my interest particularly in wrongly convicted women and queer people comes from uh, my own personal experience as a queer woman uh, and representing people who uh, are either or both women and queer and learning how their wrongful convictions are different. Uh, that many uh, queer people and women uh, who have been wrongly convicted, they were convicted where no crime occurred. And that may sound crazy. You know, how can you be convicted where no crime occurred? But if you think about um, a fire that starts in a home and started because of uh, an electrical outlet that uh, misfired or a space heater, well, uh, fire science is not really that reliable uh, in order to be able to determine, was this intentionally set? Was this a space heater? So that can lead to a prosecutor uh, saying, you know what? I think this was arson. I think it was intentionally set. I think this is murder. And tragically, that can lead to wrongful convictions where, again, there was actually no crime. 
Um, so those types of wrongful convictions particularly impact women and queer people. And so it's been my litigation focus. And that's also what I've written about in my book, Manifesting Justice. Great. So there's lots of things we can definitely go off and talk about. I want to kind of start maybe with like the more boring or the more, you know, factual. Can you take us through a little bit of background of like education and how you were able to become a prosecutor and the path you've since followed? So uh, I was fortunate to grow up in a Midwestern household in Indiana. My mom was a teacher and my dad worked for General Motors. Uh, and really a very comfortable uh, life. And so I, I didn't know much about prisons. I didn't know much about uh, the criminal justice system. And it really wasn't until I went to college and uh, began advocating for people who had suffered sexual assault uh, as a rape victim advocate that I um, started to kind of learn more about the criminal justice system uh, and that victims weren't listened to that so many people I knew who had been harmed couldn't trust the criminal legal system to um, uh, really create any type of change or any type of consequences for what had happened to them. Uh, and because of that, I became um, what people would call a carceral feminist. So that meant I believed in prison as an answer to these problems of domestic violence and sexual violence, uh, because we know that a number of um, sex offenders are uh, repeat offenders, that they harm multiple people. So I truly believed if we incarcerate someone, then they won't be able to harm other people. And that will, again, stop these cycles. And that's what drove me to law school. That's what, you know, urged me on to finish law school. I was in Chicago, uh, still in the Midwest. I worked for judges in the Midwest. And then uh, I went to our big capital in D.C. and became a prosecutor. Uh, and that's where I really started to see that still, even in the role of being a prosecutor, I still wasn't able to find justice for people who had been victimized and who had suffered these forms of violence. Um, and in fact, as a prosecutor, I became more callous and it became more about, well, let's just get some kind of conviction, even if it's a misdemeanor, uh, let's just try to get some kind of record for this person. And I wasn't listening anymore to the survivors, um, to the impacts that the cases were having on them. Um, and I give one example in my book, Manifesting Justice, just one example of kind of what happened to me as a prosecutor, um, which is I started having uh, the victims in my cases arrested and detained to make sure that they would show up in court on the days when I needed them, when I needed them to testify in court. Uh, and that's just horrific to think that here I am supposed to be finding justice for someone who's been so wronged. And instead I'm like, well, we're gonna have the police lock you up so that you'll definitely come to court so I can have your testimony. Like we're gonna 
traumatize you in that way. Um, and I did that because that was common practice in my office, right? I didn't come up with that on my own. Uh, <laughs> but it, it shows you um, kind of the, the culture. Um, and we really weren't, uh, we weren't able to, to bring justice for so many survivors. Uh, so I, I really became disillusioned with what we could do to help survivors. So then you kind of switched from prosecution to now representing people who have been in wrongful convictions. So what has that work been like? It's been uh, incredible. It's been incredible. Um, I was a prosecutor and uh, I had recently found out that some of my police officers on a case had not been telling me the truth about a case. And that's when I started to think about whether we were getting it right in terms of whether we were getting the right people. Um, and I went down to Mississippi and I had an opportunity to meet a man who had spent almost 20 years in prison for a crime he hadn't committed. Uh, and I just felt so drawn to trying to fix those kinds of mistakes, um, particularly if I had been part of making those mistakes. How could I instead be part of fixing it? Um, so I took the, took the leap and started doing that work instead. And I learned that it is so, so, so much harder to reverse a conviction than to get a conviction in the first place. Uh, it was not incredibly difficult for me as a prosecutor to get a conviction. It was so much harder to get a conviction reversed. You have to have so much evidence, so much proof. And even then, uh, it may not be enough. Um, but I've found the work incredibly rewarding, incredibly fulfilling, uh, and it's a good fight to be part of. And so in those instances where the evidence might not be enough, what is that like for you if you can't overturn or get a wrongful conviction overturned? Yeah, it is. Um, I always think of this work as broken down into smaller pieces because the overall goal of freeing someone from prison may never happen. It may never happen. Uh, so how do you keep doing the work when that ultimate goal you may never reach? Uh, and it's really, for me, it's about um, listening to people, uh, being able to share their voice uh, in the courtroom or now in my book. Uh, and that alone uh, even if you can't find relief for a person, that alone can be really powerful. Um, when you're someone who's been in prison for years and no one has listened to you uh, and everyone has believed a certain story about you, just being able to share your identity, share um, what happened uh, and why and have someone actually listen and have someone actually advocate for you in the courtroom, um, that's meaningful. Um, so I, th I think of it more that way. Uh, there are cases, uh, I've had where 
we've lost uh, and the person is still in prison, but they are now back in touch with their family. Uh, there's different ways that their lives have changed because of being back in the courtroom, because of having someone advocate for them and because of having someone uh, provide a gateway for them to tell their story. Uh, it's amazing to me how many of my clients have been able to reunite with their family members uh, and that changes your whole life. Um, so I, uh, I really value those parts of, of my work as well. Are there a lot of wrongful convictions that you always have a full plate of clients? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, th there's more people than can be represented. Uh, and again, because it is so much harder to reverse a conviction than to be convicted in the first place, that means there's so much time and energy and investigation that goes into each case so much. Um, so there's, you know, most innocence projects across the United States have a backlog of cases that they just can't get to. Uh, and sadly, but understandably, the cases that rise to the top that are the first people to be represented are the folks who have DNA evidence in their case. So DNA is seen as, you know, the golden bullet. So this is uh, or the golden ticket. This is where um, there's a uh, murder and there's blood found at the scene. Uh, and once the blood is tested for DNA, we find out, oh, guess what? It wasn't Sarah, it was Valina. You know, and then the court says, oh, this is 100% proof positive that Valina committed the crime. Sarah has been wrongfully convicted. Let's free Sarah. Uh, and for many women and queer people, they don't have that DNA evidence. Going back to the point about no crime, wrongful convictions. Well, if there was never a crime, if it was a child death that was accidental or natural, but was presented as a murder, if there was no crime, you're not going to have the aha moment of it was Valina, not Sarah because no one committed the crime. Um, so that's part of what really has focused me on women and queer people and their particular wrongful convictions. And so then can you explain a little bit about the Innocence Project in Indiana and how you've kind of helped it grow and what your part is in all of that? Yeah, so I started as a staff attorney at the Mississippi Innocence Project. Uh, and then I moved to West Virginia to found the West Virginia Innocence Project. Uh, and Innocence Projects, generally, um, they uh, take applications from people who are incarcerated. Uh, they also take references from, you know, I would have former judges uh, who would contact me, uh, former public defenders who would contact me, current public defenders. Uh, who would say, you know, there was this case, it just didn't sit right with me. Uh, and we would investigate those cases and see uh, if there was enough evidence to actually represent the person. I, so um, I've recently moved to Indiana. We're in the process right now of creating the Innocence Project of Indiana. So we're uh, working to get that up and going. Uh, we're very excited to launch it uh, soon. 
but for now, we're structuring it the same way as other innocence projects nationally. Most states have uh, an innocence project. Uh, so it's exciting that Indiana is going to have a statewide innocence project as well. And is the innocence project funded via like donation or the state like or are you taking payment directly from clients? So thanks so much for asking that. Um, if you are uh, incarcerated or a family member of someone who's incarcerated and someone ever tries to charge you for doing innocence work, they are not an innocence project. So all of the innocence organizations are nonprofits. Uh, they do their own uh, self-funding. They do not charge clients for investigating those cases. Um, you can hire an attorney to, to do post-conviction work for you, but that's not going to be an innocence project. Um, so there's an innocence network of all these different innocence projects. So a lot of people think of the innocence project in New York, which has the label, the innocence project. Um, but unfortunately, donations to that do not go to the other projects. So um, donation to the Innocence Project would not come, sadly, to the Innocence Project of Indiana. Uh, but on the other hand, that means that each project is uh, independent, um, can do work specific to their state, uh, and can really be in touch with what are the issues that are most important in my state. So I've mainly worked in rural communities uh, and in rural states, and those have really particular issues to them uh, that are very different from being in the city of Chicago or the city of New York. Uh, so there's a lot of value to having a you know, local nonprofit project. And so you've mentioned a few times about how you focus your work in women or queer people, queer women especially, kind of as a way of some of their wrongful convictions are just truly horrendous. Um, and you mentioned tying it back to your own identity. So could you share a little bit about your identity and then how you kind of make yourself public in your identity for those who you're helping? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking. So um, I identify as a queer woman. I am married to uh, another woman who is a phenomenal person, uh, Jennifer Oliva, uh, and has been a huge support for me in this work. Uh, but some of the very first people I represented in Mississippi, and actually the first uh, two women who uh, I was able to see freed, uh, were and are both lesbians, uh, and they were wrongly convicted because of their sexual orientation. Uh, and that's the story of the book, uh, Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. Uh, and the book is really about Three women who uh, are in rural Mississippi and they meet at a drug rehab facility and two of those women, Lee and Tammy, fall in love uh, and they finish the program, you know, they're successful, they're leaving. And this third woman they become friends with, Kim, asks if she can leave with them. So she's uh, had struggles with the program and just wants to get out of there, you know, take her to her mom's home, just take her out of the out of the program. So Lee and Tammy say yes. They all jump in the truck together and drive off. 
Uh, and sadly, within about 24 hours, Kim has overdosed. Uh, Lee and Tammy call 911. They take her to a local hospital in a rural county, which is just some place they've stopped along the way in Mississippi. Um, and at the hospital, there's a doctor who thinks that maybe Kim was sexually abused in some way. So the doctor calls the police, which we would expect, but the doctor also calls a dentist, calls a county dentist to come in and determine whether uh, this woman, Kim, has been sexually assaulted. So Kim is in a coma. She's in a drug-induced coma. But this dentist comes in and examines her entire body naked. She can't consent. She's unconscious. Uh, and this dentist decides that there uh, are bite marks on Kim's body, and in particular, that half of her labia has been chewed off. There's never any other evidence of this, never any blood, never any documentation, but this is what this dentist uh, believes happened. Uh, so who could have done such a really crazy act but the two lesbians who Kim had been with? Uh, and that's what starts and ultimately leads to their wrongful convictions is this bogus, uh, quote unquote, science, uh, bite mark science uh, with this dentist saying there was this bite mark and then homophobia that, well, I can't think of anyone who would possibly do this, but I guess lesbians do this. I guess gay people do this. Uh, and that there was even testimony at their trial um, that lesbians are inherently violent and vicious and dangerous and uh, commit gory assaults. Um, just shocking uh, testimony, but by experts. So in a sense, it's not surprising that the jury hears all this and says, okay, well, that's what the experts say happened, so they're guilty. Uh, and working on Lee and Tammy's case, because uh, I represented them 10 years later, um, after they had served all those years in prison, uh, working on their case really brought me face to face with um, the stigma against LGBTQ people, the stereotypes um, about them, and my own role as a uh, queer woman in stepping up and in talking about it and in advocating for them. And being in a rural community, was that ever difficult being a queer person? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like rural communities can go both ways in the sense that it can be a community where everyone knows you and everyone's like, oh, that's just Felina. You know, and, and people know you, they accept you and they say, well, I may have whatever thoughts I have about gay identities, but um, that's Sarah. I know Sarah. Sarah's a great person. Sarah, you know, was in the high school play last year, whatever. Um, so they can be beautiful in that way. And I have been in communities where I've found that kind of acceptance. Uh, but they can also be um, more easily controlled by a certain narrative where if there's a story, particularly, you know, Lee and Tammy were outsiders. 
uh, they were just driving through this town. Uh, so if there's a story, here are these outsider lesbians who are violent and vicious and dangerous, that story can also take root. So then why did you decide to share their story by writing this book? Because I didn't see anyone else talking about it. You know, I, I mean, the fact that people today can be convicted of crimes that didn't happen, crimes that were committed by someone else because of gender bias, because of homophobia, um, I just didn't see people talking about it. And I thought it was important to, to share those stories. Um, and, you know, it can be hard for people who have been wrongly convicted to even come back to their own communities, right? Because even though people knew you beforehand, there still can be this, oh, well, sure you were exonerated, but are you really innocent? Or did you like do it or did you do part of it? There can still be a lot of suspicion around people and frankly, a lot of shame. Um, so I think by telling the story kind of explodes all that. Uh, and, you know, by hearing how shocking it is and how people are really surprised uh, by it, it's like, yeah, that's right. That's right. The, this shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. And Instead of being ashamed of these things happening, um, expose it and say, okay, this is what we can learn from uh, so that it doesn't happen again. And then are you still in touch with both of these women that you, you know, talk to them about, hey, I want to write this book and or like your other yeah. clients? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, so I'm still in touch with both Lee and Tammy, and I obviously asked them both before writing this. Uh, whether I would have their permission. And I also sent them drafts of it as well for them to, to review and look at. And the final chapter in the book is um, from Tammy's perspective and her own words about being a lesbian, particularly in the 90s when she had first come out and the real struggles that she faced uh, and just sharing that part of her story. I mean, I... Um, could talk about her wrongful conviction, but her real experience trying to to come out as a gay woman in the South uh, and how difficult that was for her. Um, and then I am working on a book right now, <laughs> which is about another one of my clients, um, a woman wrongly convicted, no crime, wrongful conviction. And uh, I'm doing that um, really kind of hand in hand with her. Uh, to make sure I'm telling her story the way she wants it told. And I was going to ask if there were more books in your future. So you've currently got one underway. Is this kind of your thought for the future that you'll keep releasing these different stories of wrongful convictions you've worked through so that even more word can get out? That's my hope. Uh, I really enjoy being able to share these stories um, as as heartbreaking as they are, um, because it does just open up the conversation. Uh, and as much as I like being a litigator and fighting on behalf of people, I feel like this is another way to uh, hopefully get the word out about wrongful convictions. Um, so it's 
been great writing Manifesting Justice, and uh, I'm enjoying writing the second book. Uh, and I'm also still representing people in court, too. <laughs> so all of it. And then I believe you're also a professor. So how do you have time to do all of this? Ah, <laughs> you just make the time. Um, the nice thing about post-conviction litigation is that uh, unlike being a prosecutor or a public defender, you're not in court every day. Uh, so it's much more uh, about writing and investigating, and then you're kind of on the court's timeline. Uh, so that allows me to be able to do that work in addition to teaching. Um, and thankfully, my work as a professor appreciates me writing books uh, and supports that. So thankfully, that goes hand in hand. And what sort of classes do you teach? Ooh, I teach criminal law. I teach criminal procedure, which is about policing. Uh, I teach about wrongful convictions. Uh, I also teach about uh, forensic evidence, which is a big focus of the book Manifesting Justice. The forensic evidence of forensic science are all these different scientific fields that came out of policing. They came directly out of policing. So shoe prints, right? It was police who initially would uh, try to identify shoe prints, um, bite marks, blood spatter, uh, bullet comparison, like all of these came out of policing. Uh, and uh, some of them are not really very reliable and have led to wrongful convictions. Uh, so I teach about that as well so that we're more aware of that. And I teach in a law school and I actually love having students who are going to be prosecutors because I just wish I had had that information when I was a prosecutor so that I could look more closely at the evidence that's put before me and, oh my gosh, well, should I get a second opinion on this? Or um, is this something that's reliable or, or should I dig deeper into this? Uh, so I, I hope that I'm empowering people to be better prosecutors and then to be better public defenders too. And so then what is it like teaching about things that you like didn't learn about because it didn't exist back when you were getting your law degree? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the reasons I wrote this book was for my students. Uh, and it was both so my students could um, learn these different causes of wrongful convictions and again, how women and queer people in particular, you know, who aren't generally thought of, the majority of exonerees are men and are straight men, uh, that they could know about kind of these different things that happen. Um, but it was also so that I could share how much my own career has changed, my career trajectory has changed, and that we learn as we grow. We learn while we're in jobs, um, and that it's not something to be ashamed of, that you change your career path, you change your mind, you don't stay in the first job you ever had. Um, so I really hope that um, my students, at least in reading this, can feel empowered to, you know what, I've wanted to do this job, I'm going to give it a try, and then if it's not a fit for them, you learn what you can from that, and then you're 
um, life goes in a different direction and your career does. And that's okay. It's okay. You don't have to learn everything in law school. You don't have to know everything when you're going into that first job. And sometimes there can be so much pressure on people like, oh, I just, I have to be the best at this and know everything. And you don't. We really, we learn as we grow. Especially in law school where such a such an esteemed practice and a rigorous course load. So did you ever work with someone in wrongful conviction that you had previously prosecuted? Ooh, <laughs> no, no, I have not. Um, I have not. And my thought when I started doing innocence work was, you know, as a prosecutor, if anyone had come to me and said, like a public defender had come to me and said, hey, you've prosecuted this person, they're now convicted, here's proof that they're innocent, um, or I have DNA evidence I want to test to show that they're innocent, that I as a prosecutor would say, okay, I'm confident in what I've done, right? I've done a good job in being a prosecutor, so let's test the DNA evidence. Let's do it. Let's test it. Um, I really thought not only that would be my response, but that prosecutors would respond that way. And instead, I have never, ever had a prosecutor consent to DNA testing. So every time I've gone to a prosecutor and said, here's all this evidence that this person was wrongly convicted and we have the DNA that we can test, that would show 100% whether they were guilty or innocent every single time the prosecutor refused, every single time. Um, so that's disappointing that prosecutors themselves won't allow the light in, you know, won't, um, won't allow the truth to come out. Yeah. Do you end up making enemies in this line of work? Oh, I wouldn't say enemies. Uh, what do you mean by that, Sarah? <laughs> well, I just think, you know, for to kind of be like, you're fighting a good fight to then have people say like, no, we're not going to go down this path. I don't, I don't want to hear what you have to say. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say enemies. It is a harsh uh, word, I mean, but I didn't really know what other word to use. <laughs> Right, right. There's actually been a real push uh, for innocence litigators to work more collaboratively with prosecutors' offices where it's possible. So I think the biggest change in the past 10 years in innocence work has been from within prosecutors' offices. So a lot of prosecutors' offices now have what's called conviction integrity units, uh, which means they self-police, right, uh, whether there are wrongful convictions. So if an innocence project comes to uh, the San Diego prosecuting attorney's office, DA's office, um, they have someone in that office who may look at the case. And that's been far more powerful at reversing convictions than innocence projects alone. Because, again, like, I've never had a prosecutor agree to DNA testing, um, agree to 
one time I've had a prosecutor agree to reversing a conviction and then uh, the judge refused to do it. So, um, which is a whole nother thing. Uh, but so anyway, conviction integrity units have been um, a, a big change and trying to work collaboratively. But it is hard. It's hard being, you know, the person who is doing all this investigating, trying to make this person's voice heard and to just be told no repeatedly. It's hard. So then do you see a future for yourself in, say, a conviction integrity unit? Or are you going to stay on sort of the innocence project side of things? So I talk about this uh, a little bit in Manifesting Justice, but I'm talking about it more in my next book, where there are a number of innocence litigators who are now working in conviction integrity units. Um, or you even have people like Parisa Degani-Tafti in Arlington, Virginia, who is the Commonwealth attorney, who's the district attorney for her region. Um, but Carrie Sperling, who was with the Wisconsin Innocence Project, is now the head of the Conviction Integrity Unit for all of Minnesota. Uh, Emily Ma, who is a director of Innocence Project New Orleans, is now uh, head of the kind of Civil Rights Conviction Integrity Unit uh, in New Orleans Parish and the DA's office there. So that's happening. I mean, Sarah, that's a great question because that is happening. It really is. There's more and more crossover. Uh, and I think that's a really important growth and change. Um, and could that happen for me? Maybe. I, I will definitely not write it off. And so we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, growing the Innocence Project in Indiana. So what kind of work does that involve? Like, does Indiana have conviction integrity units already in place or is this kind of be a whole new world? So Indiana, thankfully, does have a really pretty powerful conviction integrity unit in the capital of Indianapolis. Uh, and they worked collaboratively just this year to reverse someone's conviction uh, after decades. Um, so I think there's a lot of promise there. Uh, and there's been people working on wrongful convictions uh, in Indianapolis, uh, in South Bend for really quite a while now. So I think there's a lot of support on the ground in this state to create uh, an Innocence Project of Indiana and to bring the Conviction Integrity Unit uh, on board with that and to really be part of it as well. So I think it's an exciting time to be starting a project because as of right now, the Conviction Integrity Unit is involved on, on the ground floor of shaping the uh, Innocence Project of Indiana. I'm curious if you're willing to share, is this kind of the reason you moved to Indiana? Because it seems like you have moved around a bit or was something else, uh, did something else bring you to Indiana? So that was definitely a big part of the draw uh, to get to be able to do this work uh, in my home state. But another part was the second half of that, which is it is my home state and it's great to be back in my home state and back close to my family uh, and to be able to be here, both uh, my wife and myself, and uh, have our family here really 
matters. Um, so I'm just super thankful to be able to come back here. Uh, and, you know, these, um, with these jobs, it's important to have support. Uh, I think a number of attorneys who try to do it on their own burn out because it takes a whole team to work on a wrongful conviction. It really does. If you ever think it's just like one attorney, it's not. It's family members, it's paralegals, it's investigators, uh, it's often students, um, volunteers. So it's a bunch of people. Uh, so it really matters that Indiana is going to have a project with that kind of support to do this work for the long term. And I'm very excited about that. Since it is such a an important piece of work, and it is, there are so many people involved how are you able to, at the end of the day, leave work and, you know, just kind of like be in the moment and be with your wife? That's the great thing about being a professor <laughs> is that part of my job is working on these cases and litigating these cases, but part of my job is teaching, right? And getting to know these students who are going to be the new attorneys out there who are going to be changing the law. And I think that's so inspiring. Uh, and it's a great um, counterbalance to my work is looking 10 years back, 20 years back, and to all the harms and problems that have happened. But on the other hand, my work is being able to teach people who are are changing things, are part of that change. Uh, so I'm thankful to, to have that balance. Um, and then at the end of the day, it's very important to be able to um, step away from it, go home, make a good dinner, <laughs> you know, go for a nice neighborhood walk with my wife uh, and appreciate uh, our freedom, frankly. Right. Now, do you think, you know, the future of prosecutors, the students who are, you know, entering the field, do you think there is a place in the future for less wrongful convictions? Absolutely. Absolutely. The best way to end wrongful convictions is to change how we prosecute people and change how we defend people. Uh, so there's a lot of front end change. Uh, that can happen. Uh, and that's one really powerful thing about wrongful convictions is you can do that backward look and say, oh my gosh, here's how this happened. Is that still going on today? Uh, are people still being prosecuted today based on bite mark evidence? Red flag, red flag. Um, are people still being prosecuted today uh, based on homophobic tropes? And I give examples of people in manifesting justice. So more than just Lee and Tammy, uh, is that still happening? These are things that can change and are changing. Uh, and some of my students are graduating and changing these things. Uh, so I think there is a lot of hope to uh, have fewer wrongful convictions in the future. That is truly great to hear from everything you've shared today to hear, you know, the positivity in your voice about what's to come in the future. Now, before I start to wrap things up, is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners today? 
I just want to let people know that um, if they want to learn more about wrongful convictions of women, wrongful convictions of queer people, I encourage you to pick up my book. It's called Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. Um, if you like it, you can review it. <laughs> uh, but uh, I really try to include a lot of information as well as stories in the book. So I hope it can be a guide uh, for people who want to know more about of course. And I'll definitely make sure to be leaving that title and, you know, a link to the book in the description of this episode, because you have spoken so highly of all of the topics. And I definitely think it's worthwhile to check out. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you is a little bit different. And we'll see if you have an answer. What is your cure for hiccups? Cure for hiccups. Okay, I think what actually works is being scared. Someone's scaring me, but I hate that. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. Um, and so my wife's always like, well, I can solve that. And I'm like, no, no. Um, and so I try holding my breath and drinking water. So that's my, uh, you know, trying to like calm the diaphragm, I guess, technically. But holding my breath and then like gulping down some water. Uh, and it usually works. All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I will be leaving a link for Valina's book in the description. I will also be also be leaving her website if you'd like to connect with her and, you know, see what she's got going on. And we also have the link for the Innocence Project Network. So while the Indianapolis network is not fully created yet and doesn't have its own website, you can go to the main network page and check out um, your local Innocence Project um, wherever you are located. They are all connected via that network website. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast, our website is in the description as well. It brings you to all of our past episode, all past resources and social media, all of those sort of good things. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So if you'd like to go follow any of those pages, you can get to those via our website. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. And if you have your own story and you would like to be a guest on the show, please feel free to reach out to me via email. That is always the best way to reach me. So thank you so much, Felina, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thank you, Sarah. Let's manifest justice together.